Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to International Setting, our symposium on World Health Day 2021. My name is Mark Ritchie and I have the honor of serving as President of Global Minnesota and your host for today's special symposium. Some of you have been watching since this morning, some are just joining us now. Uh, we've been looking at a global level and at a tactical level of all kinds of ways that people are tackling the question of health equity and health equality. This particular panel is very special because we're going to be hearing from four of the people who've been thinking deeply about the social and economic benefits of health equity. Sometimes people think of these issues in dollar and cents terms, and we're going to really take a much bigger picture here because, in fact, we've come to the conclusion globally, not every single person, but as a, as a planet, there's a sense that we now are saying out loud, we cannot all be safe from this pandemic until we're all safe. We can't be vaccinating part of the world and not another part of the world and be staying ahead of the variants who could take us back to day one. Those inequities between countries, within countries, those inequities that come from you know, not enough vaccine in one place or another or other risk issues, these are some of the components of this discussion. But this specific panel today, we're gonna be uh, joined by some of the people who've been thinking the most deeply and in the most dramatic way about how the social and economic benefits of health equity can be understood in the broader society and really bring about greater change. Phyllis Costanza heads the um, Union Bank of Switzerland, their Optimus Foundation. She opened my eyes to the ways that new financial tools that were linked to the sustainable development goals could be used to bring about the possibility of social change and economic change and educational change, linking the role of women and the of educational opportunities of girls in the changes around health. And um, Phyllis Costanza's uh, visionary work on social bonds has been translated many ways into many different features. Uh, we are just so fortunate and grateful to have you join us today, Phyllis, to give a picture of how those social bonds have worked, how you've come to see the linkages of the social and economic benefits of equity and equality in general, and especially in the area of health. Thank you again. and. Please join us on the web. Great, well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. And uh, to put this into context, I'll first explain um, where I sit. And um, as Mark said, I'm at, the, at UBS, which is a large global wealth manager based in Switzerland, but we have clients globally. And we service some of the wealthiest people in the world, and many of them, most of them, in fact, want to give back to society. And so we have a whole team, a philanthropy services team around the globe, about 60 people helping clients do that. And we do that in three ways. One is we offer them advice. The second one is we give them insights, experiences. We 
panels such as this, where they can open their eyes to new ways to provide healthcare to some of the most marginalized. And then finally, we have an execution platform. And that's the Optimist Foundation and some donor advice funds, where we actually help our clients to give their money away, and we help manage it for them. And we have been focused overall on areas of children's health, education, child protection, and we've recently added also climate. And the reason we focus in these areas is because our clients care about these areas. And when we ask our clients um, if they're actually satisfied with their giving, and let me caveat this, about 90% of them, more than 90% of them are giving philanthropically, only 20% were said they were satisfied with their impact. So we're trying to find ways to help our clients have genuine impact serving these communities. And we, uh, our goal really is, is trying to say Krause is bringing the ultra high net worth down to the, to the ultra low net worth and trying to find ways to connect them um, that is meaningful and beneficial. And right now we know that uh, we have about, uh, we're about two and a half trillion dollars short every single year to achieve the sustainable development goals. And we're here talking about SDG3, and we're, we we won't get there with philanthropy alone. Philanthropy alone accounts for about $1.5 trillion annually. And so even if everybody put their money into the SDGs, we still wouldn't get there. And the private markets don't focus on the most vulnerable in communities, you know, people who are investing in markets. Um, don't see opportunities to invest in healthcare and education for the for the poorest in communities. And we've seen commercial capital has generally not been invested in things like development. But we there is an estimate of, of about $280 trillion in household wealth, 80 million of which is discretionary and can be invested. And so we believe that innovative social finance can make investments in development much more attractive for commercial capital. And so we focus on social, what we call social finance, and that is laser focused on impact. And it, it really addresses some skepticism we see around things like impact investing or sustainable investing, where the impact can be nebulous. I mean, people may say, "Yes, we're we're we uh, we're financing a cybersecurity firm, and this, of course, is good because nobody's going to break into people's computers." That is good, and it is providing a valuable service. It is not, however, focusing on the most marginalized, mostly in 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 its work. Those primary those usually aren't the beneficiaries, and those are the beneficiaries that we want to target with commercial capital. So this type of social finance is niche indeed, but it's growing. And we actually, um, and, and when we call, talk about social finance, we're talking about concessional capital. So we're not always achieving the type of return, risk return profile you might see, say, in private equity, where, where one might expect a 15 to 25% return. Uh, and we're investing in some risky communities. And so we would expect to see a large return and we may only be getting an 8% return. So uh, the good news is it's not correlated with the markets, but 
it's also, you know, it's not without its risks. And many people for that kind of money think that they, they, for those types of investments, think they should get a higher return. But when we interviewed our clients, a third of them said that they would be willing to compromise on returns if they were guaranteed impact or if the impact was higher. So that is really encouraging to us. And those are the people that we're targeting right now. And so, so far, we've applied this approach to two models. One is called impact loans, and the other one is development impact bonds. Um, I'll start, I'll, I'll give a quick example of what an impact loan is. And again, the returns in these mechanisms are tied directly to impact. So the higher the social impact, the higher the return. And this is contrary to the, way, to the way social bonds work. If you look at social environmental bonds, if they achieve the environmental outcomes, the investor actually gets a lower return because it's benefiting um, the person who's taken out the loan and they're incentivized to reduce environmental uh, impact because they pay back less, but the investor gets less money. So this is actually the opposite of that, where investors will get more money if the return is higher. And so the way that works is, I'll, I'll give you one example. We invested in a company called Impact Water. They're providing clean water solutions to low-cost private schools in Uganda. And this is a health intervention. We know that when, when never more so than now, we know that when um, children and people wash their hands with clean water and soap and they drink clean water, that they're less likely to be sick, therefore more likely um, to be at school. They'll, they'll be absent less. So we gave a loan of $500,000 to Impact Water and said, the goal though is not just to get those clean water systems into the schools, but the goal is to make sure that the children and the teachers know how to use that clean water and wash their hands with clean water and soap so that attendance rates go up. So as attendance rates go up, the interest rate on the loan goes down but we don't get, as the investors, we don't get less money because Rockefeller Foundation is playing the role of an outcome funder. And they'll pay back the investors plus give a bonus to impact water because they're achieving not just the operational outcomes of getting that water solution into the school, but also important health benefits of making sure that the children are healthier. And that's an example of an impact loan. And so far with this one, uh, the, the interest rate was set at about 5%. And right now, the interest rate, I think the actual interest rate that they're paying is close to 2%. And we're, we've gotten so far a return of about 7%. So, so far, they're achieving these stretch goals of health outcomes. Uh, and then the, the last example I'll share with you is development impact bonds. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Mark mentioned one that we did on um, education, but we're also doing one in healthcare in Rajasthan, India, improving the quality of low-cost private healthcare facilities. And uh, we are investing, our clients are investing in this, and they're primarily serving poor people in communities and um, the outcome funders, so the people paying for the outcomes are um, partners like Merck for Mothers, Dell, and um, no, I'm sorry, Dell's not in that one, and USAID. So Merck for Mothers and USAID are paying for the outcomes. And as these facilities get accredited, um, 
within India and they have to abide by the government accreditation, which improves the quality, then uh, the outcome funders will pay uh, pay a you know, make a payment to the investors. So the incentive is for these healthcare facilities to actually achieve these these um, quality standards, which we know is directly linked to improvements in healthcare quality. So I'll stop there. Those are just a couple of examples of how we're trying to bring more capital and get our clients engaged in actually delivering measurable outcomes in healthcare for some of the most marginalized communities. Fabulous, thank you so much. And our next panelist is thinking into some similar notions, but Efe Ukala was the founder of Impact Her and that organization supports women entrepreneurs in East and West Africa. And she's been developing business models based on surveying the African women entrepreneurs during COVID, what were the impacts, what were the things that were needed um, for those businesses to be able to come back and come back better and stronger and creating the kind of service model around it. But some of those entrepreneurs were providing healthcare services and mental health services And Efe's been figuring out very creative ways to deal with the way the pandemic is impacting those women entrepreneurs, but tying it to making for a brighter future for all of them. Efe, so grateful that you could join us today and please join us here in the Zoom conversation. Thank you so much, Mark. It's um, such a pleasure to be here. Um, And it's it's also great to meet the rest of the panelists. Um, So, with, with with this segment, I'm gonna focus more on the mental health piece, as as you, you you mentioned. I think COVID made it very apparent that you know Africa's healthcare infrastructure was farther behind than we hoped it was. In that, you know, lots of people that naturally would have traveled abroad for their healthcare um, services or att- to get healthcare attention. Um, we're forced to stay in the country. And as a, a result, you know, a lot of them, you know, started complaining about the state of the um, of the healthcare infrastructure in the country. But what people weren't talking about as loudly as they were talking about um, on, the, on, the, on the healthcare part was the mental health path, which is not something that is uh, highly discussed or a very socially acceptable topic. Um, to talk about culturally in the in the African space, right? Because you know when people talk about health, mental health, sometimes or feeling stressed, the uh, you know response could be, oh yeah, but you're a strong woman or you're a strong man, you should be able to handle everything like throws at you. So the, the the accommodation is not quite there for you to really explore deeper. Um, but as COVID struck um, and a lot of the women led businesses that Impact I was um, working with, we're beginning to dwindle down and we could tell that this was taking a toll on the women, um, we decided to conduct a survey, um, first of all, to understand how were African women-led businesses doing um, during the pandemic and how were the women also managing. Um, The survey um, revealed, and and it was across um, 30 African countries, so we and the respondents were about 1,300 from 30 African countries, the result revealed that at about 56% of them were already exhibiting 
um, sort of mental health stress associated with, you know, their business resiliency plan, the business running, and also things going on at home. And to put things in context, um, in the African home, the woman is sort of like the glue in the family. She's the one that makes sure that the grandma is okay, you know, the mother, the kids, um, the relatives are all okay. Um, so, Against that backdrop, given that um, very sensitive position she holds, and also given that, you know, there were the, the results of the survey were already showing that, you know, those women were already um, being impacted mentally by the stress associated with, you know, their businesses looking like it was failing, um, family members passing away. Um, and also trying to care for their workers, given that, you know, that became very apparent. We had to sort of go back to the drawing board to figure out how to help tackle this. Um, because again, it, it, it appeared as though it was that sort of, you know, other pandemic that people weren't talking loudly about. So for starters, we had a um, group counseling session just to get a feel of, you know, what people were really feeling um, besides the survey results, besides what they had written out, besides what we were reading. And that group's counseling session was very revealing and also encouraging. You had people that were talking about the fact that they had lost loved ones and there was nowhere for them to let it out. Um, they still had to sort of, you know, act as strong so that other members of the family do not break down, seeing them break down and had they had to sort of have this false face going in um, to appear to be stronger than they were really feeling. Obviously, these are extremely impressive women, very strong women. Um, so after that, we had a couple of those and then we had to seek out ways to ensure that, you know, those women are able to get the help that they need without being ashamed, right? Because if you are getting on a bus and going to a doctor's office and then rather than going to maybe the GP, you're now going to a therapist, right? People that could raise eyebrows. Um, so as a result of trying to make sure that we were giving them a service in a, in a way that made them feel safe, Right. So creating that safe space for them, um, we recently started offering um, the mental health piece through telemedicine. Um, so this is where a woman, as long as she's a businesswoman um, anywhere in Africa, um, running a business, feels that she wants to talk to someone about maybe the stress of the day or maybe it's worse than that. Or she just, you know, um, needs someone to guide her through something that she considers severe. She can do it from the privacy of her home. She can do it from a locked bedroom without anyone knowing that, you know, she's calling a therapist or she needs that mental health piece. Um, the way we looked at it was that obviously there are all these therapists out there on the continent, but you know, having everyone there doesn't necessarily mean access because if you're not really providing the solution in a way that makes someone feel safe, that that person can actually really tap into it and utilize it, then we're not really talking, we can't really talk about equity there if, you know, um, that that ability to use it is missing. Um, so that is how um, we're hoping, it's still in the early days, we're hoping to tackle this. And obviously from the backdrop that, you know, I think according to the Financial Times, mental health will cost the world about 16 billion, I mean, 16 trillion by 2030. 
30. That is also something to sort of pause and think about how many people are not able to function at their full capacity um, because they don't have the right support that they need or because they're feeling down and they call out or we have people that are, you know, taking it as far as harming themselves. So that is something we're hoping to solve. And that is something that we're hoping that um, with telemedicine and just having a phone, she can th that the lady can call in. Um, the ladies that need help can call in or they can use an app. They feel safe and able to get the help they need because ultimately that will transform transform into healthier um, business women running successful businesses that can also trickle um, into the economy and allowing, um, you know, for positive growth all around. Thank you, F.A. Thank you very much. And it's exciting to see the whole network that you build up throughout Africa and the way that this network is now helping each other. And, um, you know, that's part of the social value, but it's also part of the long-term economic, as you were pointing out, the economic benefits of every step we take towards equity. Our next panel member, uh, Dr. Aza Karam, serves as the Secretary General of Religions for Peace International. So this is the largest coalition on the planet of different religious tradition. And part of that work in her life has been serving as senior advisor on culture at the United Nations Population Fund, chair of the UN's Interagency Task Force on Religion Development. She's really seen in her work and in her life, the understanding of the cost of inequities and, and inequality and the many benefits of bringing equity, equality, uh, tackling and addressing disparities directly into our work. Dr. Karam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you here. And, and I am so incredibly impressed with what I've heard from Phyllis and Effie. Um, I don't think I can quite follow in that particular amazement, but I just wanted to share a couple of things from where I am because this theme is extremely important for all of us and for a future for us to share. Um, let me just share that with Re Religions for Peace is basically all the religious institutions of the world coming together. Um, they come together at the global level. That's my board. I have over 100 religious leaders, each representing the different religious and faith communities around the world. So it's not just, there's no individuals. They're all representing institutions and communities. And then they also, we also have them at the regional level. So they come together at the regional level, representing their religious institutions and communities regionally and nationally. We have approximately 90 interreligious councils around the world. Now, the question often within these kinds of spaces is what on earth do these people do when they come together? And is it just a sort of a talking shop? Isn't it how nice that they do they do anything? And the truth of the matter is twofold. One is these religious leaders have been doing, have been coming together, yes, congregating and conversing about common issues for 50 years, but they've not just stopped at coming and speaking with one another and coming up with a joint voice as the voice of the communities of faith around the world, but they've also been serving together in different countries, different issues of priority for these different countries. So when the HIV and AIDS uh, crises hit the whole world, these communities came together and served very powerfully. And, and very few people know that largely 30 to 50% of the world's ba basic healthcare, basic primary healthcare is being provided through religious institutions. 
very few people know that this incredible amount, that's more than a quarter of the world's basic primary health care is being provided to religious institutions. Few people know that 80% of the world, people in the world, will claim an affiliation to a particular religious tradition. That's eight out of 10 people are religious in some way, shape, or form. And when we talk about healthcare services, primary healthcare services, that means that a good quarter in every nation in the world are being provided through religious organizations. So that's a very powerful block of voices of existence and of service providers. And it's important for us to keep that in mind when we're starting to talk about the value of equity, because what these religious institutions do, who together actually respectfully control more than a quarter of healthcare around the world, what they do is they don't discriminate based on, well, if, you, if it's a Muslim entity, well, you can't come in if you're not a Muslim or you can't be served if you're not a Christian. Or They don't do that. They actually serve all communities, regardless of their religious affiliation. So if we're talking about healthcare providers, these communities are absolutely integral to what we mean when we talk about the value and the enactment of actual equity of service, right? These guys have a role to play in not just actually defining and realizing equity of service, but in actually being able to tell us what it is that's impeding some of these issues of access, applicability, and value. If we speak about who amongst us has a remarkable base of power on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, they actually speak to millions of people around the world because millions will tune in to speak to them now that they many of them cannot go to the different religious synagogues or mosques or, or churches, they actually tune in. So together every day of the week, these are the first and most impactful influencers on people's behaviors and attitudes everywhere in the world. That includes the attitudes of those who are, for whatever reason, seeing profit only gain in their horizon and acting based on that. So this, if if we if even if we were to decide to overlook the power of the of the spaces and outreach and influence that these religions can provide and these religious institutions actually provide, even if we were to overlook that, we cannot overlook the role that they play in influencing and impacting on the accountability of decision makers, political, financial, uh, economic, cultural. These are the conscience, right? So they're the public conscience and they're the health service providers. And they are essentially the people who can first identify where inequities are hurting most because the ethos of all of them is that we that they have to serve the most vulnerable. So their ethos is actually the motto of the Sustainable Development Goals agenda, which is leave no one behind. Every single faith tradition demands service and every single faith institution is obligated and has over centuries, long before we had hospitals and ministries and states, every single faith institution is obligated to serve the most vulnerable. Now, whether they do that or not is another issue. But one of the things that we noticed when the COVID uh, pandemic hit, first of all, there's plenty of knowledge within these religious institutions of how they are already and how to serve as the frontline service providers. Because remember, I said they control at least 30% of basic healthcare around the world. So whether they liked it or not, and, and nobody really had the choice, these people were on the front lines. These religious institutions were on the front lines. Those, if any of our listeners know here in New York, one such religious institution even set up an ICU unit 
tent in Central Park in New York City. So hello, we think that they don't exist. They very much exist and they're serving way above and beyond the capacities because the needs are so high. One of the things we realized was that they're serving independently. So these massive networks of healthcare providers, these massive networks of emergency responders were all serving at 110%, but they were serving separately. So the whole principle of working to serve together was pretty much endangered, if you will. So an endangered species out of all of this is that we suddenly realize that it's not lack of service, but it is lack of the incentive to work together. Now, a lot of people tell me, well, why is that necessary? As long as they're able to save lives, why should it matter that they work together or not? It matters because we're sending another message of equity and justice through how we serve. And the message, subliminal in some cases, but still pretty impactful in all cases, is that when religious communities work together, when religious institutions are able to work together, we're not just talking about coordination, we're talking about the message being sent to our societies, which we heard Phyllis and F.A. speak about very beautifully, which is the, the social dislocation that is happening in our societies. That if, that where we talk about contexts where these institutions are serving on their own, the subliminal message here is everyone to his own. And that's a very problematic message to send out in a time when the world is facing the largest potential and real social dislocation ever witnessed because our, the pandemic has hit at a time when inequities were already at their highest in almost every single country around the world. So we can't afford any more social dislocation. We have to be very intentional about social cohesion. And what we believe in the context of Religions for Peace is we've got to make sure that we can enable religious communities, the religious actors who are serving on the front lines to continue to work together, to actually serve as they are, to serve together, to, to combine their, their resources, their opportunities and their centers as much as possible to serve the humanitarian response together. That is an equity issue that is that goes way beyond a pandemic, that goes way beyond the here and now, that is about the kind of societies we're envisioning post this pandemic? Do we want societies in which each religious institution has become more powerful, more strong, more enabled, and more central in the lives of its people on its own because it has served to save lives? Or do we want a society in which the question of equity of access and equity to health and social justice is being made by virtue of how we're serving at this moment because all the religious communities and organizations and service providers are actually coming together to serve together? That is the question that Religions for Peace deals with and tries. And that's why we set up the Multi-Religious Humanitarian Fund to say to the religious communities and to others around the world, can you help us insist on keeping our faith communities to serve together? Because it's not enough that we can save lives on our own. It is very critical to build a future in which people understand that by virtue of having come together because of our faith, we can overcome better and build back better indeed, rather than build back in silos of religious, political, financial domains. So that's the message. And the lesson we learned in that process of trying to put together this fund, which has been now around for, for a whole year, and it's supported 20 amazingly innovative projects, largely championed by women and undertaken and designed by women and youth of faith. The lesson learned is it, we're still each to his own. The finance sector is still looking at the finance sector. The UN is still looking at the UN. The uh, NGOs are still looking at their respective NGOs. We have a lot more to do to work better together. Um, and the religious sectors are working independently. So the message I have here is that we can't build 
equity if we're going to be doing our work in our respective silos. That ensuring the equity that we want to see that goes that starts with health but goes way beyond health, that ensuring that equity also means we have to increase systematically, diligently the way that we work together and actually pool our resources together. Thank you. Thank you so much for that powerful message, but also reminding us, you know, there's that SDG 17 about partnership. There's that whole understanding that we can all do better, but only when we all do better. These are the elements of trying to think about the social values of not just equity, but of being together. And so thank you so much for that message. Diane Tran has been uh, a leader in our community here in Minnesota um, in many different areas and now has the position of Senior Director for Community Engagement at Fairview Health Services. Those of you who tuned in this morning heard from Fairview CEO about all of the different things that Fairview is tackling in the range of initiatives about health equity. And Diane is the person who's making those happen, making and bringing those to life uh, in our community and making such an impact. Diane, thank you again for joining us today and the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Uh, thanks to you and Global Minnesota for hosting this conversation today and uh, to all of my colleagues here. It's an honor to learn about and discuss these social and economic benefits of health equity. As Mark said, I'm Diane Tran. Uh, I serve as Senior Director of Community Engagement for MHealth Fairview, and I also serve on the HOPE Commission, which I'll share about uh, further shortly. And MHealth Fairview is a partnership between the University of Minnesota, University of Minnesota Physicians, and Fairview Health Services. And we are a partnership that really combines the University's deep history of clinical innovation and training with Fairview's extensive roots in community medicine. So just for way of background, this partnership represents over 34,000 employees, 12 hospitals and medical centers, 56 primary care clinics, currently 600 plus active clinical trials, over 3,300 providers, and then partnerships, of course, with hundreds of community organizations to improve community health and health equity. And importantly for today, we're headquartered in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's home to where George Floyd died nearly a year ago at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. And we currently are uh, undergoing the trial here locally. Um, and that really was a galvanizing event for us to think even more critically about some of the work that uh, leaders in our system and uh, employees with great passion and commitment were undertaking of their own initiative. Uh, and with the leaders that Mark referenced earlier today, our CEO and Dean of the medical school, uh, standing up the Hope Commission this past year, uh, a chance for us to take a much more systemic look at the role that medicine, uh, healthcare, uh, higher education has played disparities that we're currently seeing um, the ramifications of in our communities. And so, you know, I think we want to start by just acknowledging that this work really is centered in our mission to provide care and healing. We know certainly it's the right thing to do and that if we want to meet our mission uh, to create greater health, that of course, 80 to 90% of what actually affects health and well-being takes place outside of the walls of our hospitals and clinics. So we do need to engage, uh, as the last speaker spoke to, with partnerships, recognizing that it's truly these uh, systems are social determinants of health, as well as the significance of history and the context of place uh, that we need to bring together as we think about trust, community healing, and community empowerment. 
We also know that we'll never truly have health equitable health outcomes until we have a diverse workplace. Uh, numerous studies show uh, and continue to show that increased diversity in the healthcare workforce leads to improved health equity. And we know for marginalized populations in particular, representational healthcare workforce diversity increases patient engagement, access, and the appropriateness of care. And, you know, the third and most significant reason that we engage in this work is we recognize the uh, importance we play in the state of Minnesota, the sheer size of the combined organizations of our partnership are the fourth largest employer in this state. And that means we do have the ability to affect change, particularly in marginalized communities, by making our employee populations more diverse. That, of course, will help our organization be more successful in our mission in years to come and who we employ and what paths we create for upward mobility within our organizations can directly impact the health and well-being of our community. And so what we've done, like many organizations throughout this past year with greater intentionality, is to engage a system-wide process, uh, really emphasizing this past fall, listening and learning sessions, um, several dozen of them, with uh, especially our employee population, uh, who were very hungry for this conversation, and really centering particularly our BIPOC-identified, our Black, Indigenous, uh, and people of color communities in this conversation so that we could elevate the voices of those who are traditionally most marginalized. Uh, within the normal reporting and uh, conversation streams within our organization. And, you know, as we learned, I think uh, the themes really around a hunger to be able to have more diversity and engagement to see the leadership of this organization commit to the resources, the pathway forward to be able to make this work real so that we can see the outcomes that we desire. And what I'm excited to share about today is just that we have started to make some of these strides. We know that this work will take uh, years, if not decades, to progress, uh, especially a partnership of this magnitude and complexity given the organizations listed here. But as we think about some of the efforts currently underway around our sociodemographic data improvement to better understand the diversity of our patients so that we can um, disaggregate and understand the disparities that exist within our populations uh, and that we will be able to more targetedly improve those in partnership with those populations. And we are uh, undertaking also a similar effort to clean our workforce data so that we can understand who we employ, how, and how we can retain and develop leaders that really reflect the communities that we serve locally. We're also excited that our vaccine equity response, um, building on the COVID-19 testing, outreach and education in multilingual approaches with hands-on navigation from our cultural brokers uh, for different communities um, have also been uh, a way in which we've served and responded to these dual pandemics. We did uh, this past summer and fall host 48 COVID-19 testing clinics uh, with nearly 20,000 tests in partnership with different cultural groups, faith communities, community partner organizations trusted by BIPOC communities. And then as we have launched our vaccine uh, incident command, have really centered equity in the midst of all of that work such that at this point now, we've uh, undergone at least 64 clinics in the community, again, with the diversity of trusted community organizations. And this is outside of our own health systems distribution of vaccines, uh, again, with partners of all kinds and over 11,500 doses administered um, to today. 
And so really excited that, again, we've been able to uplift the efforts of many people who have been passionate advocates on the individual and systems level within our organizational partnership um, over the years through this effort, and that we're really getting clearer on why this is so critical and why we need to increasingly invest in this work. Uh, at every level of the organization. And we're grateful to our uh, CEO and uh, Dean of the Med School for that leadership, as well as for the employees and patients and community partners who have continued to raise their voices over the years for the ways in which healthcare can serve our communities, not just in a clinical setting, but in being an anchor institution, contributing to the economic wealth and uh, well-being of our communities. So that's what I'd like to add to today's conversation and looking forward to continued discussion. Thank you so much. And all of you described amazing things underway, experimenting, making a difference, but also trying to link and connect to others and to build out and to build a kind of stronger or multiplier effect. I wonder if all of you have had, uh, you know, one particular instance that gave you an insight that was, you know, partly because COVID created some new conditions, but gave you an insight that you want to hang on to and use really effectively as we move into this next period. Uh, some element that said, oh, that's a new tool or a new insight for me as I move forward. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take a, yeah, I think what I was trying to say in when I spoke that it's, it, there's such an instinctive tendency in the height of a pandemic when everybody's feeling a little bit threatened and everybody's concerned about where resources will be coming into their respective organizations. There's a tendency to, to go it alone, but there's an even, I would say even stronger tendency that I've at least noticed from the, from the religious realms of trying to see how to support one another. So that 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 humanity that, that um, you know, the reverse side is just let me alone, let me do this, let me take care of this, we're, we're fine, to, hey, how can we, how can we make this better together? I think that realization of that particular tendency was, well, but actually the realization of both and how, how incredibly polarized those two positions are, that was very, very important for us because when we speak in realms of in the sort of giving and multi-religious and everything's great and fine and God's always beautiful and all that. But then you realize, wait a minute, there's there's the other side of this, which means that we have to actively and deliberately support the good side. We can't just assume the good side's going to be there and is going to prevail. I think there's an obligation that we have to try to support those who are ready, willing, and able to work together. And that's why we created the fund. And that's why we sought the WHO and, and the UN and said, how can we help you to make sure that these religious leaders and institutions that are ready, willing, and able to work together, how can we help you help them work together? Because we have to be deliberate in that support, not assume that it's going to happen and it's going to take place and it's okay. We just work with those we know, right? right. The better angels of our being. Yeah. And I think um, for, for us, I would add that I, I think that COVID became, appeared at least because pre, pre-COVID, we will talk to those women to find out how they were doing, you know, how was the business, how are you feeling? But it almost appeared as though COVID allowed them to be, to speak boldly about the fact that they are struggling, right? Because it was almost like people weren't feeling ashamed anymore. People are dying. How do I manage this? 
Um, I recall we were in a webinar and this woman said, look, I just lost an aunt who I was close to and then my shop caught fire and my employees are without food, right? It was, and this was in Kenya. So it's sort of, you know, allowed a lot of them to feel like given that they weren't suffering alone, they knew other people were suffering, it was okay to voice it out. Whereas pre-COVID, maybe those would be conversations people have in privacy, in, 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 in private settings. Um, but then it also got us to think more about, because as COVID happened, right, we started thinking a lot about technology. Every single person started thinking about how do I utilize technology to help um, ensure that my business doesn't die, to help ensure that I'm keeping connected with family and friends. So that was a bit where we said, I think, okay, how can we ensure we utilize this to serve women in Africa as a whole, not just Nigeria, not just Ghana, but how can we utilize technology to create this safe space? I'm not sure that's something we would have given such deep thinking to <laughs> prior to COVID, but it allows us to think, and I think this is, this is a model that we definitely would adopt. As I said, we're still going through that test phase going forward because it gives access to any woman on the continent. Well, and you also created in response the incredibly beautiful websites that got many, many of those women into a new way of marketing, a new way of keeping their business alive in the midst of this. I mean, that, that technology is really has been transformative. Phyllis, it's been a wild year. Indeed, it has been a wild year. Do you want me to answer the question that you just posed the uh, earlier? What have yeah. we seen? You can ask me something or new. Another question. Okay. No, I, th I think that all of us have, you know, this has been a really big thing, and and but it has also um, pretty much universally people have taken away certain things that now are part of. Like I don't want to lose that you know, when we go something back to X, what we call normal. Yeah, um, I think one thing, particularly as I sit in the United States, I've, I've actually spent most of my career overseas, but here in the United States, the majority of philanthropic giving stays in the U.S., 96%, in fact. And for, for the first time, I'm, I'm seeing more people, I mean, through this pandemic, realize that we are only as strong as our weakest healthcare system. So while we all have a desire to do things in our own backyard and make sure uh, that marginalized communities in New York or wherever we might live in the United States um, have access to healthcare and to vaccines and to testing, we also know we have to focus our energy in low resource countries as well. Because unless, you know, I, I think you said it at the beginning, Mark, you know, unless the, these countries um, also get their communities vaccinated, this will continue to be a threat for all of us. And I hope that we continue to see um, the global importance of addressing healthcare globally and not just locally. It's really, Alarming that it's 96%, but incredibly encouraging that you're seeing that awareness beginning to uh, to pump up. Yeah. Diane? 
Yeah, I would definitely echo what's been shared so far and appreciate that point, Phyllis. I think seeing that some of these countries will take several years to get to vaccination is is alarming. We uh, obviously live in a very globalized world where it does matter that uh, uh, our backyards are experiencing um, very different experiences uh, since viruses don't discriminate. Um, and I would just add, you know, I think what FA was referring to, just the veil dropping in so many different ways of what uh, we normally have to hold up as normal um, is, is shocking in a lot of ways and uh, is liberating in a lot of ways. And it certainly requires a lot of emotional intelligence and courage to show up and uh, energy that not everyone has. Has, uh, after a year into this uh, pandemic. Uh, and yet the opportunity that comes from being able to uh, square with ourselves, square with the institutions that we have entrusted, um, you know, whether government or large entities um, and anchor institutions that we've entrusted, uh, our care, our, uh, our commons, essentially, um, seeing, you know, what their responses have been um, and what more we need to do to invest in our shared prosperity, well-being, um, and infrastructure, I think is uh, is critical. And so we're still, I think, trying to understand the magnitude of that and what we can do as individuals to be able to affect that. And yet it's clear that uh, this is a time ripe and rife for action. Um, and that some of that is starting to shift in really significant ways. And so I hope that we'll hold on to this sense of, uh, you know, what was normal was not working well for most. And there is an opportunity and a need uh, for a new world. And so how can we start to build that? All day, we've been hearing, you know, all different levels and different components, but there's an element of um sort of the changing moment where there's a race you know getting a globally uh immune planet and variants popping up everywhere including here in the US because you know we're being kind of slow and we have so many anti-vaxxers and all of that but the fact that there is this sort of positive energy and I don't you know, I know we are getting a few more hours of sunlight. That always helps. But, you know, and we're in Minnesota. So when it reaches spring, there are elements. But it feels to me like there's some component of what Asa called people like uh, addressing that better angel that like we need to do this together, that notion that um we need to be thinking philanthropically about the rest of the world, or we need to be thinking about uh, impacts and actually making a change, or we need to be inside our institution using the resources that we have, or thinking and really paying attention to what are people feeling the courage to say about their actual condition, and then finding solutions that maybe have technology. They're just, there are positive elements in the midst of this uh, big crisis we've had. I wonder if any of you want to share the thing that gives you the the energy to get up tomorrow morning and and do what needs to be done. That thing that inspires you in that in that positive way that gets you going. 
I'll take a dip because I know that I probably have the least important thing to say and all the other colleagues have plenty of valuable to say. So let me just get this over with because I think it's important to share it again and to nuance it. One of the lessons I learned is how about this willingness, the better angels, it, in a way, it, the good way to put it is this really induces me. <laughs> the not so good way to put it is my goodness, do I feel ashamed and not wanting to wake up in the morning and serve that. Um, and I think this is, the, the 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 beautiful thing here was noticing how the young people around the world were bubbling with ideas of things that they can do and did do. So, for instance, in our case, the we have we have many interfaith youth networks uh, and women's networks, interfaith women's networks. So we, these are women who are inspired by their faith. Some of them are ordained. Many of them aren't. They're just doing normal things, but they're very much inspired by their faith. And they come together to work together. And we realized that the young in the African context, the African youth network, interfaith youth network, decided on their own that they needed to train the women of faith network on social media. Because now, okay, we can't communicate. We can't see each other anymore. So now it's social media. You don't know social media? What do you mean you don't know? What do you mean you don't know what a tweet is? All right. So they arranged. I don't know how they did it. But they managed to um, actually provide a training totally on their own. We gave them zero resources. They did this on their own. They did a training for the African Women of Faith Network. That's women of faith from across the religious spectrum, from across the sub-Saharan African countries. And now the other women of faith networks in the Middle East and uh, South Asia, whatever, are saying, what can't we do? We want that too. We want that too. And and we, we found this remarkable um, I guess, resilience uh, and creativity that was produced by, that was completely led by the young people and now they're ready and willing and they're doing so many other things and to me this is this makes me wake up in the morning and want to wake up in the morning because I realize that it's an obligation not just to to celebrate them which is very important but really even more important to see how to support them how to make sure that there is active support for these for this will that is there that seems to this resilience that's that's there very much part of who they are as younger people Serving and surviving so much, I think, honestly, I don't know about the positive stuff, but this is the obligation stuff. And, and the call that I would make to my colleagues on the screen and to others, you know, there are pockets of amazement that are taking place. And if we're not deliberate about working, even if they're outside of our scope of normal or the kind of people we know or the kind of organizations we work with, we have a duty. We have an obligation to make sure that we reach out and find them and support them. Thank you. I'll go next. Um, I, I'm incredibly inspired by what we've seen. Think about it. Within days, major corporations and everybody around the world was working from home. We never, ever thought that was possible. Within a year, we came up with a vaccine. I mean, these are things that would have been inconceivable. We have the ingenuity. We have the technology to solve problems that we have been living with for decades, if not centuries. And um, this pandemic has taught us all that absolutely anything is possible. And if we're really committed to solving some of these health inequities around the globe, we have the technology and the will to do it. Amen. And I'll just tag along to that. I definitely echo the uh, 
you know, themes you've probably seen throughout today already and what people have talked about uh, that have been the beautiful things. Um, I'll just say, you know, maybe the less noticeable thing, which is uh, the communities uh, that have come together to advocate for themselves and one another in solidarity. And so the acts of, you know, mutual aid and what we saw in the Twin Cities this past year, uh, the public art and how people came to express themselves and grieve together for the harm that was done in our communities, but to support one another. Um, and the organizing that has been happening and that has continued to happen to call for change, to call for what's needed and for justice in our communities. And, you know, that has always been there. People and communities have been organizing and that just always hasn't been heard. But with greater technology and access, with not being able to be uh, out in the world like we have, we have a little bit more time to hear a little bit more clearly and we can't look away. And so uh, this is the time that I think we have the you know obligation as well uh, to to be able to listen more closely in a way that moves us you know to an even more beautiful world. Um, but just a kudos to those who have been doing the work to get us to this watershed moment where we can uh, use this opportunity to take that action that's been being called for. So um, for me, it's really seeing the effects of the work um, that is being done for them. Um, getting those emails, I was trying to find one um, where, um, you know, I think uh, someone, a member of my staff had written to say, hey, you know, I hope this helps contribute to your success story. And she started by saying, no, it doesn't help to contribute to my success story. In fact, that is my success story, right? Um, those messages um, are inspiring because you feel like you wake up every morning and the little you're doing is having a positive impact on someone else and gives them a better outlook to life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful this is recorded and it'll be on a website and archived. And when I want that energy and that inspiration, I can come to this, but also people around the world will be able to see this and be inspired by your work. But I also know that we all will have the chance and Phyllis put it pretty clearly, you know, we've got the technology as long as we have the motivation, the oomph to do this, um, we can help each other and find new ways of working together and weave together all the better angels into more and more spaces of amazement. Thank you to all of you for joining us today and being part of World Health Day 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Take care, everyone.